When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Let's see how many more we can squeeze out there. 45-year-old woman with a three-year history of systemic sclerosis. Stop right there. Class, on the board exams, do they love scleroderma? Is that a gimme on the pulmonary boards? The answer is yes. So especially when we talk about rheumatological diseases, and I ask you, well, what room disease can give you pulmonary manifestations? The answer is, well, all of them, right? Whether it's dermatomyositis, polymyositis, and lupus, or RA, but scleroderma always really seems to be a favorite on the board. So I really wanted to spend time with this. So we have a 45-year-old woman with a three-year history of systemic sclerosis, presents to the clinic reporting increased dyspnea on exertion and dry cough. You know, exam vital signs are within normal limits. The O2 stat is 96% on room air. She has perioral skin tightening, classic for scleroderma. Lung exam reveals crackles at both lung bases. That can't be good. Cardiovascular exam has normal heart sounds. You know, extremities are notable for skin thickening, extending to the proximal to her PIP joints, but there's no clubbing or edema. You know, labs, she has an SCL70 antibody positive, otherwise known as an anti-topar isomerase. On labs, TLC is low at 68%, really defining a restrictive lung disease having the low TLC. FBC is low, less than, you know, less than 80, but not too low. FEV1 is uh, normal, 82%. The ratio is on the normal, the higher side, classic for a restrictive intrinsic lung disease and dlco is definitely reduced at 62 percent you know and the tlc fbc and dlco all those have decreased since the previous set of full pfts six months ago so she has worsening dyspneon exertion worsening pfts class you know learners does this sound like the previous question of the patient who had sjogren's the answer is not even close that Sjogren's patient had, you know, normal PFTs, really didn't have any symptoms, no harm in monitoring. You know, this is going to be one of those, what is the next step? What are you going to do? How are you going to treat? You know, so they got a high resolution CT and wow, it looks like, you know, you see traction bronchiectasis over here, maybe some early honeycombing down here at the bases. I could see why the DLCO was going to be low. So what medical therapy has demonstrated efficacy, keywords efficacy, with the least adverse effects. How do you want to treat this, folks? Should we, A, give this patient cytoxin, which is cyclophosphamide? Should we give this patient some mycophenolate, which is going to be Celsep? Should we do a little rituximab or tuxin? Um, or how about profinidone, which is going to be an antifibrotic? 
you know? So which one is, you know, for me at least going to be the wrong answer? What's well, going to be perfinidone, right? When we talked about these antifibrotics, we're not talking about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. When we talk about IPF, both perfinidone and brand name OFIP got the FDA approval. But when we talk about these other ILDs, the only one that got the other approvals is going to be OFEB. And OFEB really had some studies when we talked about scleroderma patients, even though it got a broader indication when we talk about the progressive phenotype from all these ILDs. So D is wrong. You know, C, I mean, I'm not saying you can't use uh, rituximab <coughs> when um, you have scleroderma, but, you know, for me, using a biologic is when you start throwing out some of these Hail Marys out there, right? And that's not going to be probably the first thing I'm going to use for scleroderma. It really comes down to A and B, right? And have we used cyclophosphamide for scleroderma? Definitely. Have we used mycophenolate? For sure. But which one's going to have the least side effects? Yeah, I mean, you folks are amazingly, I, mean, I don't even need to be here. You guys are so awesome. The answer has to be what? B, mycophenolate. So let's talk about this. Remember the Sjogren's patient? Does anyone remember what percent of these patients have symptomatic ILD? Yeah, that was like 20%, right? This one, close to 80% of people with systemic sclerosis will have an ILD. And I'm not even talking about, talking about pulmonary arterial hypertension. You need to know that for the board exams. And especially now that there are going to be, you know, uh, these uh, there are going to be uh, medications for pulmonary arterial hypertension. These inhaled medications that come in even in a dry powdered form. They got FDA approval for ILDs. Go figure. But back to this. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's not surprising when we talk about scleroderma, patients get interstitial lung disease. You know, they get UIP, they get NSIP, you know. So there have been a number of rigorous trials looking at what? Cyclophosphamide versus placebo or cyclophosphamide versus mycophenolate or even natinidib OFEV versus placebo when we're talking about this. And because when we're talking about, you know, a interstitial lung disease secondary to a rheumatological connective tissue disease, you want to attack the anti-inflammatory as well as the anti-fibrotic. But today, we're really going to be talking about the anti-inflammatory. And I know someone who just knows way too much pulmonary is already mentioning, but Dr. Raj, you didn't mention tocilizumab. Don't worry. Give me one second. We're going to talk about tocilizumab coming up. So when we talk about you know, the right answer, it's going to be mycophenolate. When we talk about mycophenolate in itself, you want to titrate it up to around three grams per day. Of course, getting baseline CNP and CBC. You want to watch for GI tolerance. You want to uh, uh, look for uh, nausea. Sometimes some clinicians may use a myofortec, which is a kind of a different formulation of mycophenolate uh, for those who don't tolerate it. They want to stick with that category of drug. But, you know, when we talk about um, cyclophosphamide, there's toxicities acutely and chronically. When you give cyclophosphamide acutely, it really suppresses the immune system. You really will wipe out those WBCs. Of course, chronically, every single person here memorized this. What chronic, you know, um, side effect do we worry about with cyclophosphamide? You folks are amazing. You're right. Hemorrhagic cystitis. Therefore, we give what drug? Mesna. You folks are amazing. So I did put a little thing about tocilizumab here. You know, tocilizumab got the FDA approval. Don't get me started. You know, for people who have um, 
interstitial lung disease secondary to scleroderma. It's 162 milligrams weekly by a subcutaneous injection. And, you know, I still say that when would I consider that this medication if you at this point can't uh, tolerate, you know, Celsep? You know, as far as, you know, um, comparing it to cyclophosphamide, tocilizumab is a biologic and inhibits interleukin-6, IL-6. But it's a little less toxic than cyclophosphamide, but we don't have as much data when we talk about the use for tocilizumab compared to cyclophosphamide. Of course, you know, what, you know when we talk about maintenance therapy, you know, um, it, you know, typically most people when we talk about being on CELSEP, you know, we usually continue that for at least about two years and we reevaluate on these um, uh, for these patients. Refractory disease, once again, I mentioned rituximab. And this isn't a typo down here. Yes, people who have scleroderma, how do they die? From the lung, it's horrible. And yes, there have been trials doing cell, stem cell transplant for scleroderma patients because they have horrible, horrible lung disease. So I'm going to whip through this part because once again, I really want to make sure I get you uh, as many questions as possible. But what they will ask you on the board exams for scleroderma is how do you categorize it, everyone? Look at this little diagram up here. You know, on your boards, scleroderma really for you folks are we focusing on systemic sclerosis. Scleroderma has two main types, localized and systemic. Localized means it only affects one organ the skin. People with localized scleroderma don't get involvement of the organs in the body, right? They don't get lung involvement, heart involvement, kidney involvement. It's only going to be skin involvement. And what is morphia? Someone's already asking me that. It is one type of skin lesion that you see with localized scleroderma. Systemic sclerosis means that it really could affect every single organ in the body, and we subcategorize those to limited and diffuse. What really separates limited from diffuse, everyone? The take-home message is limited doesn't mean less organs involved, and diffuse doesn't mean more organs involved. Any organ that can be involved in limited can be involved in diffuse and vice versa. It really comes down to skin scoring, which is with limited, you have less skin involvement. Diffuse, you're going to have more skin involvement. And what did I put here under systemic sclerosis is that there are other things that could fit under there, such as mixed connective tissue disease, otherwise known as the overlap syndrome. They have a positive RNP antibody, and overlap syndrome can definitely cause interstitial lung disease. And yes, there is something called scleroderma, which means scleroderma without the skin finding. Go figure it exists. This is a picture of morphia, just the skin findings when we talk about scleroderma. Limited scleroderma, many of you uh, remember the crest syndrome, which is a nice little mnemonic uh, when we talk about some of the characteristics when we talk about scleroderma. And of course, on your boards, the pulmonary boards, if they start talking too much about someone's nails, the capillary nail fold bed, really they're hinting at a scleroderma diagnosis. Limited and diffuse scleroderma, you could start evaluating them with an ANA based on the titer and the pattern. You could think about more specific antibodies. Limited scleroderma, anti-centromeres, the classic association diffuse, anti-toparisomerase, like in this question on the board exams. And with diffuse scleroderma, they have a higher risk of getting renal involvement. Don't forget renal crisis. That's why we try to avoid steroids in scleroderma patients. Lung, definitely interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension. And of course, some cardiac disease when we talk about this. So how do you die from you know systemic sclerosis? The lung, pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary arterial hypertension, you know? And when we talk about scleroderma, please, you know, I almost guarantee they're going to definitely ask you that 
on the board exams. So let me try to squeeze in one more question here because I know that I'm in this whole interstitial lung disease mode. So let me do one more ILD. Then we'll kind of see if we're gonna go to questions or not. So what about this 55-year-old woman presents with progressive dyspnea, cough over eight months. Her medical history is notable for exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Her meds are PRN uh, albuterol on physical exam. It's notable for some crackles on lung auscultation. PFTs, her total lung capacity is low, less than 80% predicted at 70. Her FVC is low, less than 80% predicted at 65%. FEV1 is also low at 55%. DLCO is less than 80% at 65, and the ratio is on the higher side, classic for a restrictive intrinsic pattern. Get a high resolution CT scan of the chest, as you should anytime you think about interstitial lung disease. And here you go. Man, let's look at this CT over here. And already, you know what I see here? Dr. Raj's favorite cereal. What's my favorite cereal, everyone? <laughs> That's right, it's honeycombs. So I see honeycombing you know, in the periphery, subarticular, you know, uh, maybe some traction bronchiectasis, which tells me everyone review your Fleischner Society guidelines from 2017 in regards to characteristics of a UIP pattern. Um, back to the question. They do a social history and there you go, owns a parakeet. <laughs> and so I know all pulmonologists are, are listening to me today. So of course you say parakeet, you know what I'm going with this. This is going to be one thing and only one thing, hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Now, I want to make sure I spend some time and, and talk about the, that for the board exams. So, but my little pearl is anytime you're reading a vignette and it says parakeet on it, you know this poor patient is what? They're screwed. Never own a parakeet on the board exams. And you know when I teach internal medicine boards, I always say don't go to a picnic on your board exams because anytime you go to a picnic, you're done. You're screwed. You got HUS in two seconds if you go to a picnic. So this person with the parakeet, I don't sense good things. Which of the following test results uh, would aid the diagnosis with the highest sensitivity? Yep, I'm playing that whole biostatistics game. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, what are we thinking about here, everyone? It's no secret. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis. What is going to be the best way to diagnose this with the highest sensitivity? It's going to be A, a bronchoalveolar lavage, looking for lymphocytes. And I guess the cutoff is more than 35% lymphocytes. Should we do a trans bronchial, ooh, cryobiopsy? My interventional pulmonary people love doing that. They freeze the tissue and try to get big chunks. Uh, and also we'll do a little EBUS, I guess. Um, uh, check serum IgG antibodies to avian antigens. All right. Or, hey, um, kind of doesn't make sense. Maybe do a methicolon challenge test here. Uh, so the answer is not going to be D. You know, no, uh, no one really thinks this is going to be asthma. Um, and, I, you know, and, you know, when it comes to these antibodies, don't get me wrong. I always order them. But you're going to make fun of me and say, but Dr. Raj, it really doesn't change your management. And you're right. Just because you have the antibody doesn't mean it's the trigger. And because you don't have the antibody doesn't mean it's not the trigger. So it really comes down to A and B. You know what I mean? And so I would say, based upon the wording of the question and really trying to go in by guidelines, you know, the answer is going to be what, everyone? Yeah, you guys are so awesome. I don't even need to be here. The answer is going to be what? Bronchoalveolar lavage. It's going to be the most sensitive, looking for what? 
those lymphocytes over there, right? So let's talk about some hypersensitivity pneumonitis. You know, sometimes we refer to this as extrinsic allergic alveolitis. You could use these terminologies interchangeably. And who's going to be, who's going to get this? The answer is we don't know. We don't know who's you know, predisposed to having this immunologic reaction, getting this inflammation to all these different triggers. And what are going to be these triggers? Well, wow, there's like over 300 ideologies, you know. So whether we're talking about farming or vegetable or dairy cattle or bird or poultry or grain or flour, there's so many triggers out there. And you know why I put this here? Because when we talk about you know, UIP, pulmonary fibrosis, you know, what is one of the common things that can go lead to that chronic HP, you know, and most of us as pulmonologists say that if someone has a UIP pattern and we don't know why, I'm sure it may be idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or maybe it just could have been, you know, chronic HP that we just really didn't know what the trigger was, you know, but I use the word chronic and I, you know, I apologize because we're starting to go away from that terminology. So I know when I was taking my boards, you know, in training, I used to call it acute HP and subacute and chronic, but you know, it's so hard based doing it based upon timing. So the American Thoracic Society, you know, stated that maybe we should categorize them in two main types, fibrotic and non-fibrotic, and it really helps correlate what you should do with these patients. And you know, and it does make sense to me. So when you talk about how do you evaluate these patients, well, of course, you want that exposure history. I mean, it's not wrong to check these IgG-specific antibodies, but like I mentioned, you know, their presence or lack of presence doesn't confirm or rule out any of these diagnoses. You know, you definitely want to get imaging. If you say short of breath, of course, chest x-ray, PA, and lateral first, but the minute you really think it's going to be an ILD, you really do need to get that high-resolution CT scan of the chest. And I put a couple different images here. You see some localized honeycombing here. You see a diffuse ground glass over here. So it really can present in also a very big spectrum of disease when we talk about hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And of course, if someone knows what the you know, the provocative agent is, if they say, hey, when I'm away from my bird, I'm away from this job, I feel better, the response to avoidance also helps with the diagnosis. So with that being said, it really kind of leads me to talk about what? Diagnosis. So how do you do it? Well, you know, if you got a, it really comes down to, do you have a classic history and physical examination and you know what the trigger is going to be? You know, if that's the case, you know, it's not wrong, you know, to make the diagnosis based upon that. But let me just take a step back. Boom, boom, boom. You know, and I know when we talk about HP, that it is a multidisciplinary decision where we present the case with interventional radiology, radiology, pulmonary, interventional pulmonary, CT surgery, uh, who do I forget, uh, pathology, to really come up with the right diagnosis. But based upon air quote guidelines, you know, they would say that, the, you know, the test with the highest sensitivity now that's minimally invasive really is doing a bronchoalveolar lavage. And of course, you really want to see a lot of lymphocytes. How many? Well, some numbers they throw out there is greater than 35%. But I'll tell you clinically when I do get the cell with different, do a lavage, sometimes it goes way above 50%, you know? Once again, getting a BAL with lymphocytosis is very supportive in the right clinical setting, but it's not diagnostic. And 
And of course, all my fellows always yell at me and say, Dr. Raj, that makes no sense. Why isn't the answer a transbronchial biopsy? You're right there anyways. Why don't you just do the biopsy? Well, of course, you're looking for poorly formed granulomas, you know, giant cells. You may not get them. It could be sampling error, and it is invasive in some cases. So even though many of us may do a transbronchial biopsy because you're just there, I mean, based upon this question, looking for sensitivity, you would just want to do that lavage with the cell with differential. You know what I mean? And of course, I put if necessary, where it's really going to change your management. Of course, that's that's why CT surgery comes to these multidisciplinary, um, you know, uh, events to get to chime in on their on on their opinion. So I already told you what you see on diagnosis, why pathology is so helpful, looking for poorly formed granulomas, multinucleated giant cells. And of course, how do you treat? Well, number one, avoid easier said than done if you don't know what the trigger is. And it really comes down to, hey, if you have more of the non-fibrotic, kind of like the acute or subacute, I think it's very reasonable to try a course of oral steroids, you know, but if we're talking about chronic fibrotic, they may not respond. You always want to think of how old is the patient? What are the comorbidities? Do they have bad CHF? Are they fluid overloaded? Do they have bad osteoporosis? And with all these things put together, you may or may not give a trial of oral steroids. And of course, you know what I mean? Um, when we think about steroid sparing agents or secondary agents, the data isn't really robust. You know what I mean? And the same two drugs we talked about for Sjogren's ILD is going to be used here, whether it's going to be talking about brand name Imuran or mycophenolate. You know, and basically I choose the one that I feel comfortable with. I choose the one that has the better side effect profile for that individual patient. And of course, like we could talk about with any of these interstitial lung diseases, you I mean, if they're symptomatic refractory to medical therapy, of course, you always want to get them involved with lung transplant. And with that being said, um, what do you think, um, Paula? Should I do one more? Should I stop? Or what, what I mean, uh, what, do, what, do, what, do, what are you feeling? Uh, we have, unless people want to log <coughs> questions now, we probably have time for one more. All right, cool. Mina, I mean, number one, everyone, I want to say thank you for staying on for, I mean, this whole thing. I mean, we started with 32. We ended up with 32. It's a big, it just makes me feel like warm and fuzzy inside. So um, I like this question. It's short, but it's deadly. Okay. So if I have any uh, attendings listening here today, um, this is a great question to ask your fellows, but don't pick on the fellows. They're very hardworking. Okay. Um, there's a 49-year-old woman with a long smoking history and has progressive dyspnea and they do some spirometry. They only, only do spirometry, not doing like the full PFT. So what do they show? The FEV1 is 88% predicted. The FEC is 90% predicted. Both of those are what? Normal. They do the ratio, the FEV1 over the FEC, and it's normal at 82% predicted. Okay, where am I going with this? Um, which clinically significant disease process could be consistent with these pretty normal spirometry, all right? Um, is this, are this normal spirometry consistent with a significant ILD, B, emphysema, C, chronic bronchitis with airflow obstruction, D, severe diaphragmatic weakness? Um, you know, I would, I would love to give out you know, more and more and more books that they, people could just guess this, but hopefully 
congratulations to those who got, you know, two of my awesome books today. I'm really happy. And I purposely go out of my way to, uh, to give my books out for free because I just want people to enjoy them and learn from them. Okay. Um, so the answer is that if you have severe diaphragmatic weakness, what would the TLC be? It would be low. So I didn't even give you the TLC, but it would be a restrictive extrinsic lung disease. And if it's pretty bad, what would the FEV1 be in a really bad restrictive lung disease? It's got to be what? Low. What would the FEC be? Low. So it can't be severe diaphragmatic weakness. Would it be chronic bronchitis with airflow obstruction? Well, if you're telling me there's airflow obstruction, well, number one, what PFT parameter defines obstructive lung disease, well, the ratio has to be what? Low, and especially the FEV1 has to be low. They're both what? Normal. So it can't be C, significant ILD, not just that, that, that Sjogren's patient that we talked about earlier today. You know, this is someone's significant ILD. So if you're gonna have significant ILD, number one, there's no total lung capacity, but really the FEV1 and the FVC both have to be what? Low, especially that FVC. When we talk about interstitial lung disease, it really has got to be low. All these are normal. So the only one I'm kind of bullied into it is someone who just has the quote emphysema. We're not even talking about mild, moderate, severe, just emphysema. So yes, emphysema is the correct answer because it really comes down to is spirometry, even though that's the best and only way that we diagnose emphysema, is it good at detecting early emphysema? And the answer is not really, but it's all that we have. And that's why when we talk about COPD for your board exams, I wanted to put this as the last question because COPD is the bread and butter for most pulmonologists like myself, that when we talk about how severe is your COPD, we just don't memorize spirometry anymore. Don't get me wrong. When we talk about the gold staging, you know, it's going to be mild. It's going to be greater than 80, moderate 50 to 80. If it's going to be 50 to 30, it's going to be severe, less than, you know, you know, uh, what's it called? Less than 30 is going to be very severe. So of course we have those, but we combine it with what? Their symptoms. You combine it with what? Hospitalizations and steroid use and questionnaires, you know what I mean? Like the MMRC and the CAT. So it's a combining the symptoms and the spirometry because there are some people have that have normal spirometry and they're doing really poorly and people with very poor spirometry that do well. So how can the spirometry be normal with emphysema? It really comes down to some of the uh, physiology. So it really comes down to Learners, is emphysema disease of the proximal airway or the distal? And the answer is the distal. And because it's the distal airway, I have to use two words when we talk about the word resistance, series and parallel. And when you're in series, resistance is going to be very high. But when you're in parallel, resistance is going to be very low. So when we talk about spirometry, hold your breath, blast it out. What are we really measuring? Things in the proximal airway. But emphysema is a part of the distal airway. So when we talk about the proximal airway, that's up here. This is in series, very high resistance. But emphysema is way down here. And look at this picture. Everything is branching. Things are in parallel. It's very, very low resistance. So what does that mean? To notice changes in your FEV1, to notice changes of resistance, changes in flow in the upper airways, 
you got to damage so much of your alveoli before you even start noticing changes uh, uh, in spirometry. And that's why people could have emphysema and have a normal spirometry. And uh, I hope to see all of you one day. And most importantly, good luck on your pulmonary boards. I wish you all the best. And I know you do amazing. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.